From the AM-FM 24-7 radio network, broadcasting from AM and FM stations around the country, welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur, because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday the 15th, 10 days left for you Christmas counters, which would include me. We've got a fantastic show for this Friday. We're going to start off talking pricing with Claire Stepanek. She has a shop-in plug-in, Shopify plug-in. Great, great. And then after that, Doug McIntyre will be with us to talk about his new book, Frank's Shadow, and how to get in the media, PR, all sorts of great stuff. Appreciate you being with us. Let's get started. Very excited to welcome our first guest. She is solving a problem I think that all of us have felt. Her name is Claire Stepanek. She went to a school called MIT. Maybe you've heard of it and then had a very successful career at Bain and a company called Apple. Maybe you've heard of it. And while there, I'll have her tell the story. She had an epiphany. She was working in the uh, purchasing arm, I guess, of Apple. And I'll let her tell what happened. That has led to her new company called Ergo, E-R-G-O. She is the founder and CEO. It is a pricing software platform that helps you negotiate prices with retail. I'll let her explain all of it. Claire, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. So you're at Apple and what happens? Tell us the story. What are you doing? Yeah. So when I was at Apple, I was leading multi-million dollar negotiations in their supply chain team. So managing all of the costs of the little mini pieces that end up in the final Apple products. Um, so lots and lots of negotiations going on. And I realized that a lot of the stereotypes about negotiations that people think are actually completely wrong. So people think you have to play like good cop, bad cop, or put on these different roles when you're negotiating. And none of that seemed to be true for me. I found that the most successful negotiations were very simple when I was just authentic and it was just what is the price you're willing to pay? And the other party said that works or that doesn't work. <laughs> so that, that simplicity was actually quite a breakthrough. And that's really what launched Ergo, the startup that you were talking about and that I founded because the idea with Ergo is that it allows people to similarly, when they're online shopping, if they're like, hey, I love this product, but it's a little bit out of my budget they can make an offer where they say, this is how much I want to pay. And then the retailer can either accept or reject it. But it's really kind of giving everyone access to that same negotiation skill set that I learned at Apple. Very cool. All right. So let's go through several use examples. But before that, Claire, I saw that you were coming up on the show and immediately a story popped into mind. And I don't know if I've told this story recently. I don't think I have. So I think this story is overdue. I got divorced about 20 something years ago and two little kids with a new house condo to decorate. And one of the things that needed was just a bunch of toys for these kids. You know, their toys stay yeah. in their house. Right. And so 
I, it was the middle of the summer. It was not sale season. And I went into a local retailer. It was a one mom and pop type place, not a chain and said, I'm going to buy a thousand dollars of toys today somewhere here or down the street somewhere. But I, you know, I'm going to buy a thousand dollars. I want 25% off because I'm buying a thousand dollars. Yeah. And the manager without a second of hesitation said, yes. <laughs> and I got my own sale that day, the gym sale, you know? Exactly. I mean, the story you say, I mean, everyone I think has stories. I'm not sure people realize they're negotiating in their daily life. Like when you ask for a refund or any, or ask for an upgrade when you're boarding a plane or something, all of those are negotiations that people are doing. Very good point. That's why I sit in the back of the plane all the time, I guess, Claire. <laughs> so walk us through a use case now for a store user and then maybe for a consumer individually. Let's start with the store, please. Yeah. So what we're hearing from a lot of stores is it's something like this product is just not really selling and I have a lot of inventory for this product. And so what they can do is if they're on Shopify, cause that's how we launched is as a Shopify app, they can download the Ergo app and then they can add the Ergo button that says make an offer with Ergo to that product. And so that way, when a shopper comes to their website, if they get to that product, they'll see that that button is live. And so it's allowing stores to kind of clear those things that just aren't really selling or maybe have sold a lot, except they overordered and now have all this inventory. So that's really the use case we're hearing from stores is they're putting them on products like that. Well, that's a great idea. I love that. Uh, it's sort of like the suggest a price button on eBay or something like that, I guess. Exactly. It's very similar. It, what we did want to avoid, I think with eBay, people don't necessarily love the back and forth where you're kind of feel like it's stressful. And so this is really, once you make your offer, it's either accepted or rejected. You're not going to hear a counter offer from the store. So you really just kind of put forward the best price you can pay and then leave it. So hopefully it's simpler and less stressful for people, but it's, it's very similar to what you're describing. And I, I do use that button on eBay. I'm an eBay addict. I, I collect junk, Claire, uh, <laughs> as my wife would put it. And uh, I'm on eBay all the time, and I use that button. And people do negotiate price. Uh, you know. So I think your idea is uh, going to take off. All right, so I understand the story. Thank you. Example. Thank you. What about an individual use case? How does that work? Yeah, like maybe uh, right now it's cold out, or at least I'm in New York, so it's really cold out. And so maybe someone's looking for like a really thick winter coat, but coats are really expensive. And so instead of looking at something and being like, oh, I just can't afford this, let me go find something else. They see the make an offer with Ergo button on that page and they can go, oh, like, you know what? I do really want this coat, but it would be better if it was $50 cheaper or $100 cheaper. And so they can click that button and put in their offer. And then the other thing they put in is how long they're willing to wait. So for something like a coat, or you probably want it pretty soon, maybe you're only willing to wait like a week for the retailer to think about your offer. Um, and so they can put in that information and then the retailer, if they accept it, then the person got a coat for a price that was in their budget. All right. Makes a lot of sense. I, I love it. 
All right. Thank you. Thank How do you, you make money? Yeah. So we're, we're selling to the retailers to kind of put this software on their website. Um, so they can pay for the software. We also have a free option so they can add it for free. Um, and then we also make money when they make money. So on every offer that's actually transacted, we take a little percentage as well, but only when they make money. Okay. That sounds fair. Yeah, that's where we're, we're aiming for that, was that it sounds fair. And that's why we did the free tier as well, because we just want people to try it. I think it's going to be really exciting as people try it and use it more and realize how much it can kind of change their online shopping. And it makes it more fun, too. I actually enjoy the process because, you know, there's anticipation and it's a contest and I don't know. I kind of think it's fun. I love the Asian countries, Claire, where you go and the markets where you negotiate and haggle and stuff like that. You know, uh, yep. I bought underwear in Hong Kong. I bought like 30 pairs just because it was so much fun to haggle. <laughs> it was a contest to see if I could get it down to a dollar a pair. You know, uh, that it was the game of it. And um, unfortunately, I've they've all disintegrated i need new i need to go back it's almost worth going back just to shop again all right let's switch gears now i think we understand what we're doing it makes a lot of a lot of sense let's talk from an entrepreneur standpoint now how'd you get started what'd you do first uh who did the programming where'd you get the money walk us through an entrepreneurial history please claire yeah, it's funny. I, I kind of joke that I'm like the least startup founder background of any startup founder because I think you went through my bio at the start, but I've had these very corporate jobs and Apple is like literally the biggest company in the world. So to go from Apple to being a startup founder is definitely not a common transition. Um, but I really think I've just always been surrounded by people with this entrepreneurial spirit. And it's really motivating when you see other people doing it. It's just exciting. Um, And so really when I was at Apple and, and had this realization that like, Hey, there's something here with what I'm learning that would be really cool to bring to everyone else. It just kind of felt like the right time. And also right now with everyone talking about how high inflation is, Right. Like everyone hates prices everywhere. So it seems like the perfect time to come out with a tool to kind of lower prices. Um, so that was about the timing of it. And then the logistics of how it happened. So, like two years what? ago, three, how far back? Yeah. Um, so I left Apple two years ago. Okay. Um, but I only founded Ergo a year ago because it always takes some time to like get up the courage to truly leave the corporate world and, and start a startup. Um, so Ergo was founded in March of this year. Okay. So pretty recently, actually. And so you had the idea. First thing you have to do is build a platform, right? Actually, we went about it a little differently. I had the idea and then I went out and got funding from venture capital before we had any product or any revenue or anything. <laughs> okay. And doing yep. that, did you have to give away a lot more of the company, do you think? They do say in the early rounds that you're giving the most away that you would ever give away, but we actually had a lot of interest, which was awesome. And so it allowed us, and also I'm a negotiator, (laughs) so I would say we didn't give away too much um, by doing it that way. 
you know, a non-connected, you weren't an entrepreneur before. How did you find the VCs and how'd you get in and walk us through, uh, give us a primer on getting into the VCs and finding them and stuff. I mean, you know, they hide, they're very hard to find. Yeah. They're impossible. Yeah. I, I completely, I experienced that. I think with VC, something they all say is it's better to have a quote, warm intro than a cold intro, meaning they want to hear about you through a friend of a friend or have someone they know tell them about the startup. So I was trying really hard to find those warm intros and really it was relying on my network. So like a lot of people from Bain, where I first started my career, ended up in venture capital or a lot, I went to MIT undergrad, a lot of them did. And so it was people I hadn't talked to in a number of years who were so kind and so willing. I just reached out like, hey, any help would be appreciated. And if they could just get the ball rolling, kind of like they would introduce me to three people. And if those conversations went well, but maybe one of the venture capitalists was like, hey, I love the idea, but it's not really my space. Let me pass you along to other people. It sort of snowballed. So I only had to get in the door a little bit and then once you're in the door, they kind of start can introducing you to other people down, but it definitely was relying on people's help and friends from the past kind of helping me get in the door. And how much money did you raise? Yeah. So we raised a million and a half dollars. Okay. And then you spent a bunch of that on programming. How did you find your programmers team, et cetera? Did you bring them in? Yeah. Did you do outsource it offshore? What'd you do? No, no. So everything's in-house. I mean, I have a little bit of a technical background as well because I majored in math, but then we have an engineering lead we brought in. She is someone I worked with previously. We had a great relationship. And then she had actually, after I met her, gotten really into software engineering. Um, so she came on board and then similarly, director of product was another kind of friend of a friend um, that joined as well. And then the rest of the team kind of all followed that same pattern. Um, so we're a pretty small team actually at this point um, with just the lead engineer and head of product and then a couple of contractors in different areas. But that's all we have to get. That's all we needed to get the product out. Well, you don't need to get a bunch of people if you don't need them. And then <laughs> exactly, how did you start telling stores and users about it? So how did you start getting the word out? Yeah, this has been, this is kind of where we're at now because we, we just recently launched. And so it's been really fun. I mean, I just walk around. I'm in New York. I go and meet stores um, and just kind of tell them about the product. And that's actually been very successful, not only getting customers, but just to hear kind of what people's pain points are and make the product better. So even if they don't end up using Ergo, I find that it's really valuable for me to be going around and talking to people. Um, so manually reaching out to them is how I would answer your question. And then we're also using social media. So we have an Instagram and TikTok. Both of them are at Ergo Offers. And so that's helping shoppers kind of understand like, what is it? What does it mean when they see Ergo when they're on a store shopping and trying to get the word out to them that way? So those are the different approaches we're trying. All right. All that makes sense. I love pounding the, the pavement. You know, that's uh, the good old fashioned way, right? But I think that that's what's going to take and get out there when you exactly when you meet a retailer what is their response uh how how do those conversations normally play out 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are facing this problem of having inventory that doesn't sell. Like, and it doesn't have to be a lot. Like it can just be one shirt where they're like, I just cannot get rid of this thing. <laughs> it's like taking up space. And um, so that really resonates with the store owners. Then it becomes like our tool is only compatible with Shopify. So sometimes their website is on a different platform and, and we'll get to them in the future. Um, but really it seems that inventory piece is the real problem that a lot of retailers are facing. And that the conversations, as long as there's a little bit of an inventory problem, are really smooth because everyone gets it and they're like, Oh, this would be awesome. So it's actually been very positive. I was expecting it to be tougher if I'm being perfectly honest, but people are really receptive. Well, also, you know, you don't have to use it for all of your stuff. You exactly. Know, it's just that one shirt you have to use it for. So it's not diminishing the brand. You know, I think that some of the pushback might be ameliorated my favorite word, uh, <laughs> by simply saying, you know, this isn't for your entire line, ma'am. This is just for that one or two things you can't get rid of. Um, exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. I think it's funny too, because we're seeing some of our users are actually putting it on everything. Cause I thought similarly to you and we made it one of the easiest things to do is to pick which products get the ergo button. Um, but what we're seeing is when people use it, they put it everywhere, which is really exciting to see too of like, it is private. People don't know if the offer was accepted or not, or like if someone else's offer was accepted or not. So it does protect the brand, um, which retailers, to your point, is a key concern for them. Yeah, I think that that would make make it a lot more uh, appealing to me. So what's your goal, Claire? Are you going to run it for five years and then flip and sell? Uh, do you already have other ideas? as an entrepreneur or, uh, oh, now that you're sort so of, far you, ahead you of me. tipped your, you <laughs> put your toe in the, the non-corporate waters. How does it feel? I mean, I love it. I, if I could tell everyone, if you have a passion for something and you want to start a startup, you should do it. It's just so fun. I mean, I'm in such a unique position that I could hire people that I've worked with. So it's just, we have this fun team and we're working on something we all care about. So like you really can't get better than that. in like what my day to day looks like when you say what is five years down the road, I like think every week. So I'm more like, what is next week going to bring us? Cause there's always something in startup land that pops up. Um, but no, what I envision for Ergo is any place that you have ever bought something and gotten a discount, Ergo shows up there. Like that's what I think this really can do is it can smooth out and make all of those interactions so much easier and so much more fun. Like if we expand to every store online and then we go to car dealerships or any other service you've negotiated, I just really think kind of the sky's the limit for Ergo. So definitely on that train right now. Ooh, car dealerships. I hadn't thought about that. That's a great one. That's actually where I got the first inspiration for Ergo was I, I mentioned that I kind of was at Apple and had this realization, but what I did was I actually tried out the concept of Ergo when I was buying a car. So I, I said to the dealership, like, this is the most I'm going to pay. That's it. <laughs> we're not going to negotiate. And they made me meet with a bunch of people that were like, really, are you sure this is what you want to pay? And I said, I'm sure. And they said, okay, we'll go talk to someone else. And they, they kept talking and I was there for hours. 
But at the end of the day, I got the car exactly at that number. And I realized like, oh, this really does work um, as a concept and for stores. So I definitely, (laughs) I would push it for car dealerships as well. Talk to me for a second about transparency, Claire, and how important that is, your thoughts on that. And let me tell you another little story. My very first business was in summer camps. I used to run the world's largest summer camp company. We started with two locations, one in Palo Alto at Stanford and the other in Cambridge at a place called MIT. And (laughs) I have all sorts of MIT stories. We flooded one of your computer labs and all sorts of stuff. And uh, I can tell you MIT stories all day long, but the first year I had no idea how to determine the price. And, you know, those locations are expensive, MIT and Stanford are expensive places to get room and board and, you know, to run a camp and everything. But I knew that we wanted to be expensive because I believe that products should be expensive. You don't, I don't like a downward spiral price negotiation, like a Walmart thing, you know, the, yeah. Another one of my favorite stories here is there's a Walmart award for reducing your prices. And if you do it again, you get another award the second year. And then there's a special award the third year. If you reduce your prices from Walmart, it's called the bankruptcy award. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I digress. So I wanted to have an expensive product and summer camp is 150 a week, you know, something like that. We came in at 496 a week plus overnight. If you want it, that was the day price. There was an overnight price as well. And I remember trying to figure out how to, what, you know, uh, I, I, that wasn't my, I wanted to be around 500. I didn't know exactly where, but I ended up at 496 because I figured out this. I made the week 62 hours long. That's what, uh, how many hours I was going to spend with your kid. And at eight bucks an hour, that's 496. And do yeah. I deserve eight bucks an hour to take care of your kid at MIT and to teach him C recursion programming? Does yeah. He, do I deserve eight bucks an hour for that? Okay, fine. He's going to be there 62 hours. That's the price. And we put that in the brochure the very first year. It's eight bucks an hour. And here's the number of hours. And and we got zero pushback on it. People accepted our price. Uh, what do you think of my little thing there? And talk to me about transparency. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. One of our core, core values as a company has also been transparency, right? The entire premise of Ergo is you're upfront with your pricing, right? So if our product is doing that, our company needs to be doing that as well. So I I think that makes perfect sense. And people understand that. I think everyone understands something is a service or something is a business. And to say like, hey, we need to make money. Everyone's like, of course you do. No one's going to feel bad about that or, or have that question that. So as long as you justify it and explain, I think everyone gets it and resonates. So it makes perfect sense to me that that was successful. And to go back to your original question on how important is transparency, it's like one of our top, top things. So very important. Do you believe in salary transparency? One of the HR trends that's popping up around the world now. What are your thoughts on salary transparency? 
Yeah, we're, I think we have that in New York. I know when I was out in California, they started to do that. I think it's important. I mean, I always, we would always do this at Apple. I mean, they had hired us as a team of negotiators. We would talk about our salaries with each other, right? Like that's something that I think so many people shy away from, but it's really, it's the, there's no downside, right? You learn another data point and I just think it's valuable for people to know. And I think it's important for someone to feel motivated at work to know kind of where they land and that they're not way on one end of a pay spectrum. Right. Well, so many times the women get the shaft on that. I mean, the data right. is out there. Uh, most recently, this uh, SBF, Sam Bank Bankman Freed, his yep. co-conspirators, the men were making $100 million a year, and his girlfriend was making $2 million a year. Yep. No, there's, there are still so many problems, especially around gender and diversity pay that I think there, it, we only can get better and hopefully transparency is one step of the way. And then hopefully with some transparency, you see kind of better things. But the concern I always have too is people going the other way of like, oh, now pay is transparent. So they kind of come up with other ways for pay to be unbalanced. So I'm sure there's going to be more and more that we have to work through. And you will be there to solve the problem. Claire, amazing <laughs> story. I love all of your accomplishments and I can't wait to have you back in a couple of years and get the update and see what you're doing and how you and the company have progressed. It's a great story and congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. How do we find out more? Follow you online, get the app added to our Shopify, et cetera. Yeah. So for retailers, they can read more about Ergo on our website, ergooffers.com. So E-R-G-O-O-F-F-E-R-S.com. And then they can find the app if they have a Shopify website by just searching for Ergo in the Shopify app store. And we are the first thing that pops up. And then if you are a shopper and you want to see what stores are getting Ergo and kind of learn about how to use it, Ooh, yeah. we have, yeah, we have social media. So we have Instagram and TikTok. Both of those are at Ergo Offers, again, E-R-G-O-O-F-F-E-R-S. And so you can find us there and we post kind of how, how to use Ergo. We announce retailer drops there of what retailers are now working with us every week. So that's definitely the place to be most up to speed about what's going on with Ergo. Yeah, well, that'd be a fun place for me to go and just, you know, find a cool thing and negotiate for fun one evening, you know, instead of buying more junk on, on eBay. Exactly. So, exactly. Anyway. Claire, great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we will be right back. We are back in again. We still so very much appreciate you being with us. Very excited to introduce our next guest. Please welcome Doug McIntyre to the show. He is a fixture down in Southern California. He was a longtime columnist for the Southern California News Group, which included the LA paper and the Orange County Register and a bunch of other publications there. Also been very successful on the radio, had a longtime show of himself called McIntyre in the Morning, which ran on KABC. 
From what I know, that's the biggest station on the West Coast, uh, I think, pretty sure. So it's pretty impressive. He has also written a bunch of TV shows that you have watched, Married with Children, WKRP, Full House, Mike Hammer, uh, Liberty Kids on PBS, which is one of my favorites. He is also a very active speaker and MC, and has worked with someone named Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, President Bush. Betty White. Wow, what a list. John Cleese. Ken Burns. It keeps Robert Redford. It keeps getting more impressive. And he has a new book out. It is his first work of fiction. It's called Frank's Shadow. Doug McIntyre, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is my pleasure. All right. Tell us about Frank's Shadow. Why is it chasing him? Well, Frank's Shadow started tw literally 25 years ago, the night that Frank Sinatra died. Uh, and as it turns out, I had a, uh, a friend of mine whose dad died the same day. And uh, it, I started thinking about the nature of celebrity in this culture and how one death is satellite news ricocheting around the world. And the other guy's death is in the back of the papers by the mattress ads and the racing results. And you had to pay to put them there. So it kind of kicked off from that. And then essentially over the years, it evolved into uh, really a meditation on fame, family, and forgiveness, the three Fs. Uh, and it is a family drama set in, in Eastern Queens, uh, New York in 1998, mostly in 1998. And it's an Irish American family with a deep, dark secret from World War II that the uh, son, the youngest son, Danny McKenna, who's a sort of debauched historian, he tries to go and discover who his father really was when he realizes he knows everything about the famous singer and almost nothing of substance about his own dad. And it's been interesting, Jim, since the book came out in July, I've heard from so many people who have written to me or told me in person how they identified with this, that once we lose our parents, we realize how many mysteries and how many just basic points of family history they take with them to the grave because we never really talked with, to each other about the stuff that, you know, in retrospect really matters. Wow. I've got to read this book. I lost both of my parents in the last year, Doug, and, uh, I'm always going, gosh, I, I wish I knew the answer to this or what's the, you know, who's that relative or how am I related to that person? And it is so sad, the institutional memory, the family memory that disappears. And Doug, this is a, a weird, true story. Let me tell you this. My grandfather, uh, Bill Beach Third. so yeah, my grandfather had a heart attack and dropped dead at the age of 53 the same morning that JFK got shot. Yeah. And he... Yeah died in the Houston Botanical Garden. And my parents, of course, ended up at the hospital that day. And my mom noted that everyone in the hospital was crying. And she was like, oh, that's so polite. Everyone's crying for her Papa Bill. And not realizing she still didn't know that JFK had been shot. And so she thought all of everyone's emotion was for her. Yeah, it's uh, you can get upstaged even from the other side of the, uh, of the great beyond. Yes. <laughs> and that's really what kind of happened. And by the way, the night that Sinatra died was also the very last episode of Seinfeld. 
So there was this huge pivot of culture where everybody was talking about buzzing about the last episode of Seinfeld. And then it came over the wire services that Frank Sinatra had died. And then the next day, everybody was buzzing about that. So, you know, it, it is interesting. And having worked around and with so many celebrities in my professional life, I, I've, I've just been fascinated by the, by the sort of the secular hierarchy that this represents. We don't have an aristocracy in the sense like a royal family like they have in England and other countries. But we do uh, have a connection to famous people in an odd way somehow, sometimes that is actually stronger than the people we live with. Like when a, when a Pee Wee Herman dies, a lot of people mourn the loss, even though they never met him because he was a big part of their childhood. And that's true for Jimmy Buffett. It's true for, you know, Tina Turner, for Jerry any- Garcia. Jerry Garcia, anybody, whoever it is that created this, emotional soundtrack, if you will. And if you think about it, there's a, there's a real reason why that happens. If, if an artist, whether it's a painter or a singer or a poet, a novel, whatever, if they don't make you laugh, if they don't move you emotionally, then they've failed and you probably don't know who they are. But if they do make you laugh, if they do move you to tears, if they move you to dance, then they have reached you at an emotional level that frequently Uncle Carl, who asked you to pull his finger at the Thanksgiving dinner table, does not necessarily do. So we can have this real deep sense of loss when these people die. And that's really what Danny McKenna, my lead character, he's, he's sort of a musical anomaly because at 40 in 1998, he should have been listening to rock. But for whatever reason, the music that spoke to him was really the music of his father's generation, the great American songbook, the Sinatra's and Ella Fitzgerald's and Nat Cole's, etc. And when Sinatra dies, he, he realizes again that he knows everything right down to that Sinatra was a forceps baby. But he, he his own dad was an Irish immigrant deafened in World War II and one of these silent Sams who never talked about his experiences. He realizes that his father was closed off to him. So he tries to use his historian skills to discover who his dad is and uh, in the process uncovers a very deep family secret uh, that casts his own life and his father's life in a new light. And that secret, by the way, is what took me 25 years to finish the book because I started it in 1998, but I wrote myself into a dead end. I needed a secret that justified the reader's journey and everything I came up with was either stolen or awful or both. And then, you know, what always happens in the process, enough years pass. And then one day, totally out of the blue, I, I said, ah, that's what I got to do. I, I, I came up with the ending I needed. And then I couldn't wait to finish the book. So here it is 25 years later, and it's finally in the stores. So I'm very excited about that. Well, congratulations. And uh, it sounds like a, a great book. Is it happy or sad at the end? Uh, I think it's it's redemptive, definitely. It goes to very dark places. Danny's got his own problems, but it's truthful. And ultimately, as I said, the three Fs are fame, family, and forgiveness. And the last part is really big because Danny learns to forgive himself and to become a better person from having gone through his father's journey and his own journey. So uh, I think there's enough trouble in life without you know, buying a book and getting more troubles piled onto you. So I like to have a little bit of hope at the end of the story. Yes. When I was a kid, I never understood why my dad wouldn't go see serious movies and stuff. I remember about, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us were going to go see terms of endearment. And he was like, no, I'm not going, I'm just not going. And I was kind of 
you know, PO'd at him because, you know, his friends were going, my friends, the kids, everyone was going and he just wouldn't go. And, you know, I figured it out later. He was a doctor and he didn't want to see someone dying on screen for him. There was no fun in that, no entertainment, you know, that was too close to home. And so, well, I totally get that. Well, you know, we had a, a kitchen wall, a wall phone in the kitchen back in the day when you still had landlines. And that it was right behind my father's head in the kitchen. We ate every meal there. And that thing could ring until it got a hernia and he was never going to answer it. And it drove my mother crazy. And then as I got older, I finally realized why my father wouldn't answer the phone at home because it was going to be nobody. That was fun to talk to. It was only and Miss September was not calling Bob McIntyre, father of three with a mortgage, what he was doing on Saturday. It was going to be somebody who wanted something. So I, I, I think that as we get older, we start to have these deeper appreciations for the humanity of our parents. And that's really a big part of what drove me to write this book. I love it. Any homage to a good parent or uh a parenting story appeals to me right now. So, uh, that's where I am. Doug first novel. Congratulations. How'd you get it published? Tell us the behind the scenes story. We're a show of entrepreneurs. So the backstory interests us, uh, how'd you get it published? Uh, how are you promoting it? Selling pretty well. It looks like and five-star reviewed on that Amazon place. Talk to me about the business side of the book now. Well, the business side of the uh, of uh, publishing ha has been impacted by the digital revolution, just like every other aspect of life. Really, uh, it, it, the publishing has been democratized in the sense that you have this self-publishing world where literally anything can be published. Anybody can publish anything. Uh, the, the, and also, the the big four or five publishing companies keep buying each other up. Uh, so it's gotten harder and harder to penetrate that world. And then there's this sort of boutique uh, partnership publishing deal where it's a hybrid between self-publishing and traditional publishing, which is the path I took using Greenleaf uh, Press out of Austin, Texas. And the experience for me has been wonderful. Uh, and part of the reason that I went that way was uh, I needed the assistance of professionals. I wanted professional editing. I wanted professional designers. I wanted professional marketers, et cetera. And all of that uh, came with uh, the, the professionals at Greenleaf. But I, I got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now, and I'm not going to live long enough to go through the route of traditional publishing. And I learned that over the period of about two years. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's I wish I was kidding, but it's, I mean, there are, you know, especially when you're a first time novelist in your mid sixties, a publisher is like any other branch. It's like seeking an agent in Hollywood. Agents like to get young talent because they feel like they can then have a client whose career will grow over a period of years and years and years. And a publisher is going to make an investment in a new author who's 66 years of age. Well, how many more books are they getting out of that person? So as they try to build a brand, because, you know, you are a brand. When you're an author, you're a brand. Certainly, I mean, Stephen King is an iconic brand, and he's got a built-in audience for anything that he puts out there. But when you're a first-time author, you have to establish that brand. And for me, my brand has largely come from my years on radio, uh, and also writing the newspaper columns, uh, which I still do for the Southern California News Group, and I'm still doing 
a little bit, it was kind of ironic. I retired from KBC in uh, 2018 and started working on the book on January 4th of 2019, full time to finish it. And then in June, just as I was getting ready for the publication date in July, I got a call from KFI in Los Angeles, which is a monster station. So it was too good an opportunity to turn down for marketing the book. So I've been doing some fill-in work uh, at KFI, a longtime rival of KBC, and never the twain would meet back in the day. But uh, I'm still doing that. So in December, I got a whole bunch of dates that I'm doing for KFI in December. And it's, it's been fun because, because I don't have to do it every day. I could say no. That is always an advantage, Doug. It's always nice to be able to say no. So more books in the pipeline. Do you have other stories to tell? Yeah, definitely. I've, I've got, uh, you know, now that the writer's strike and the actor's strike are resolved, there's a TV project that's in the pipeline and, uh, I've got a play another, at least one more book and possibly two. And uh, if I live long enough to do all those things, I'll be I'll be a happy fellow. Give us your advice on getting published. Don't give up. Uh, this book is a testimony to that because I literally started it 25 years ago, and I always believed I've been writing a long you know for 45 years professionally, and I know when an idea is valid and when you're you know you've got a dog on your hands here, and it's like this one you should just put aside. So I always believed in this story and I just needed to crack this one plot point. And once I had something that really surprised me, I figured, well, that's going to be satisfying for the audience to discover what the secret is. Then it was a matter, just a matter of doing the work and just keep digging until you find a way to make it happen. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to define success. Uh, I think that's really true as you get older uh, well, actually, let me back up. I think the earlier you can define success, the better, because it's very easy to have the other people's definition of success be the tail that wags your dog. And then you're largely going to be miserable doing that uh, if you can set your own terms. And for me, I was fortunate in that my wife and I were not dependent on Frank Shadow selling in order to make December's mortgage payment. We obviously want it to be successful uh, because it'll make it possible to do more books. But for this book, it was a passion project. And I like the idea that it physically exists in the world. And we've all been there when we've pulled a book. If you're a reader, you've all we've all picked up a book that seems obscure, uh, some ancient dusty book. And you have no idea why it landed in your hand. And it can end up changing your life, that experience. And you never know. Well, this thing could sit on the shelf and somebody in a troubled family may read it somewhere down the, ride and say, uh, down the road and say, this is my family. I totally get this. And, and that's a great, satisfying, that's, that's, that's enough success for me. Let's put it that way. That is a great definition. I love that. Doug, that's, uh, that's a good one. What did the kids say about it? Your kids? Uh, my are, are kids, they in it secretly? No, is it? no, no. Uh, you know, there, there are, uh, I have, you know, when you write a novel, uh, especially a novel that's goes into troubled waters, you get a lot of questions. From people saying, did that really happen? Is that there's the, the, the book opens with the death of Frank Sinatra or the last concert that frank sinatra did in new york city and then and then his death and i was at the last show that frank sinatra did in new york city 
Uh, and uh, so it's Radio your City fault Music. that he died. Is this? I don't. I'm part not of taking the, the rap on Doug? that. You killed there have Frank. Been, there have been people who have pointed a finger at me, but I. But Jim, I'm I'm pushing back on that. I'm not taking the I'm not taking the fall on that one. <laughs> but uh, but but I I I call it uh, emotionally autobiographical, but not factually autobiographical. It's I, I I'm, I'm I certainly reveal a lot of how I feel about life and the path, maybe even that my life has taken. But the actual events, and by the way, I'm thrilled to report that the events did not happen to me because it goes to the places that I would not have wanted to go in my life. Uh, but the characters are not. Uh, my father was a very different person than the father in this book. Uh, so, so it's not autobiographical in that sense. It's, it's genuinely fiction. All right. You know, you always, as you said, you always wonder, you know, I can't write a book now with a mean wife in it because my wife will go, you're writing about me. You're hurting my dad. <laughs> no, honey, it's made up. It's fiction. No, it's me. You know, so, uh, Anyway, where's media going, Doug? You've got your finger in so many different parts of media. We finally got all of these strikes done. Where is the macro headed? Is streaming going to work as a a model or not? No one seems to make any money at it. Uh, What are your thoughts on 20 years from now? Well, I don't know that anybody can go 20 years out because, frankly, I think one of the sticking points for the uh, Hollywood strikes was that, you know, they were negotiating a three-year contract. And I don't think the studios themselves knew where their own industry was going to be in three years. Forget about 20. Because the technology is changing so rapidly and the, and the audience is fragmenting into smaller and smaller enclaves. So, uh, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, the NFL is so valuable because, because it's one of the few events left watching football on Sunday, everybody gathering for the Super Bowl. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why Taylor Swift is such a a phenomenon and Beyonce, these two mega, and I I think, uh, what's his name? Uh, the little Ed Sheeran is another one who's selling out giant, you know, Met Stadium, Met Life Stadium in New Jersey with 65,000 people. Uh, with an acoustic guitar. So you ha- you'll still have, I think somehow you will always have superstars that bubble to the surface that draw big collective audiences because people do like the collective experience. I think that had a lot to do with why Barbie was such a phenomenon where people liked sharing the laughs and sharing the experience in a communal setting and live theater will always be around to a greater or lesser extent. But because of you know, the ability of literally anybody to put a podcast up, to put up a YouTube channel, to to live stream. Even a schmuck uh, like me, Doug. <laughs> well, look, we've all been there. And, and the thing is, is that what has changed profoundly is the, uh, what, the way the audience reacts to things. For instance, if you watch a movie from the 1930s, uh, and I learned this when I, we were doing television, you know, 40 years ago. Once the remote control came into our lives and people could click off the channel without getting out of the chair, you had to move faster or you bored the audience. 
And in the, you watch a movie from the 1930s. If somebody's exiting the room, the camera stays on them all the way out the door. The door closes and you cut on the door closing. Now you move a shoulder towards the door, cut, gone. Uh, and it's implied that they went out the door. You have to constantly hit the stimulus button because there's 800 million alternatives. Uh, and and the, the upside of it, of course, is that very boutique or esoteric things can find uh, can find their community. Like I'm a big fan of the old American Basketball Association where Dr. J played with the red, white, and blue ball. Well, there's all kinds of Facebook pages. There's all kinds of stuff related to that. And I'll dip in there, wallow in a little nostalgia, make a comment or two, and then leave. Well, if that's what you want to do, you could spend your whole life just wallowing in whatever that interest is. The problem of this, of course, is that we're losing the cohesiveness, the cultural cohesiveness that, uh, you know, back in the days of the Ed Sullivan show or when Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show, if you were on those shows, everybody saw what you were doing and everybody had this this common reference point. And now I think that this is filtered into society in general it's filtered into politics why it's so hard to come to consensus on anything because we don't have consent you know try to get five people in the office to agree where you're getting lunch on any given day <laughs> you know you have to have a powerpoint presentation in order to get them to say panda express you know so so you know i i, I think that there's an upside and a downside to it but it's definitely a profound change and in terms of where media is going i'm not sure that Anybody knows that eventually it's just going to be the Doug McIntyre channel and the Jim Beach channel and the fill in the blank channel, or are, will they start to consolidate and reform into some kind of a network system? I, I'm really not sure, but it, 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 it seems like the sports franchises even, uh, I mean, how much longer is the NFL going to continue to shell out, you know, um, or how much longer are the networks going to shell out billions to the NFL before the NFL just says, "Hey, we could keep, we could do this ourselves. What do we need NBC and ABC and and you know ESPN and CBS to put football games on? We'll just live stream them and charge them per game or per season, you know." So, so I, I think everybody is trying to figure out what the future is, and then on top of that, you can add things like the rollout of AI. And we're totally uh, shooting without a script. I mean, we really are. I don't think anybody can. I mean, when you when you see things like the Walt Disney Company is is seriously may get bought out by Apple. You know, I mean, that would be unthinkable that the With Walt Disney their Company pocket change. They have five times that amount just sitting in their bank right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so there's, you know, that's why I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not dodging the question. I just literally don't know. I don't think anybody really knows because technology and audience taste for try to find somebody under 65 that will stay through a commercial uh, break in radio. And I look, I did radio for years and years and years. And you could just see that when you went to uh, traffic, on you know traffic uh, on the 15 bottom of the hour and quarter two well with gps does anybody need a helicopter telling you about two roads when you they're not necessarily the roads you're on and and then the, with streaming we've got an entire generation of kids who have never watched a commercial during their favorite shows so uh how you monetize 
media and you make it show the business side of show business everybody's interested in the show part and they may get that but how people get paid and have an actual career doing it that's a that's a real problem as the audiences get more and more fragmented you know, maybe seinfeld was lucky that frank sinatra died the next day or the same day because that conclusion show just sucked that was one of the yeah. worst conclusions i've ever seen of a series but it's an interesting date. You know, that was also, you could maybe say one of the very last times we had a water cooler conversation in America. Um, well, you know, 98, 1998, I discovered this while writing Frank shadow that, uh, it, it's a very strange time because Google wasn't Google. I mean, we were just entering the profound digital revolution. There were millions of people that were still waiting for the dial-up modem on AOL, and then millions and millions more who didn't have it. They didn't have the internet. So, so uh, I mean, in my story, for instance, my character has to go to the library to get information at, at various points because there is no, there's no Google to, to Google things. So, uh, so 98 was a real transitional period, and it exploded so quickly from 1998 to 2000. In those two years, the internet just exploded into this, this massive presence to the point where we don't even remember what life was like without it. And that's, of course, what is happening with AI. I mean, I heard AI, when, when ChatGPT first hit the news, it was described as Google in 1998. You know, it's just, you know, mushrooming in its, uh, in its capacity uh, to to create and replicate human thought and 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 words, and and I don't know if we know where it's going to go. I really don't think anybody can. I don't. The people who created it don't know where it's going to go. Doug McIntyre. dot com. How do we find out more about you? Follow you online. Get a copy of Frank's Shadow. Well, you can get Frank Shadwell all the obvious places like Amazon.com. You can get it at BarnesandNoble.com as well, and most good bookstores could certainly get it for you. And if you want, if for some reason you'd like a signed copy, and I love doing that, you can get one of those at DougMcIntyre.com, and all my stuff is there. And uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, I'm on uh, Instagram at uh, Radio Gas Bag. So that's my handle on Instagram. So uh, any of those places, you'll find me. I'm pretty easy to find on the web. Fantastic. Doug, thanks for being with us. Great stuff. Congratulations. And I hope it sells well. Uh, Jim, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Every, uh, every author uh, of fiction always loves it when people will take the time and interest to let us yap on about our books. So thanks so much, Jim. My pleasure. We are out of time for today, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Enjoy the holidays, then. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.